It's the Victorian Variety Show. The businessman and his wife were both suffering from weakness, a sore throat, inflamed eyes, and headaches to such a degree that they were driven to seek refuge by the sea. Even their pet parrot was seen to be unwell, refusing to eat and drinking incessantly. Whilst at the seaside, their symptoms dissipated, but recurred almost immediately following their homecoming. Suspecting that their green wallpapers were to blame, they had them all removed, and within a week, the whole family, including the parrot, were back to full health. This is the Victorian Variety Show podcast. My name is Marissa. And the quote I just read is a description of some mysterious symptoms reported to a physician named William Hines by a British couple in the winter of 1856. As Jessica Charlotte Haslam explains in Deadly Decor, a short history of arsenic poisoning in the 19th century, Hines himself suffered from nausea, abdominal cramps, and lightheadedness every evening for some time before he put two and two together, you might say, and realized that the symptoms began precisely when he retired to his study, which was decorated with a shade of wallpaper that was all the rage during much of the Victorian era, called Shields Green, and as we'll see in a few minutes, it had other names as well. Upon taking a sample of this wallpaper, Heinz discovered that this popular color contained arsenic, which was undoubtedly the basis of the symptoms suffered by that unfortunate couple I was just talking about. And of course, their poor parrot, never forget the parrot, and also contributed to the health problems and in many cases, deaths of many other people because as we can see just from the popularity of Shields green wallpaper, arsenic was ubiquitous during the Victorian era. And even though when we think of arsenic, it's easy to picture, say, women trying to get rid of their husbands by sprinkling a lethal amount of it into their stew, or maybe trying to collect on a family member's insurance policy over a period of time by adding a small amount to their tea every afternoon so that when they did it, it would look like an accident. You know, that type of thing. But you might be surprised to learn that a large percentage of arsenic deaths during this period were actually accidental for the most part even though looking back on this period with a 21st century perspective, you might also say that some negligence was at play on the part of businesses and manufacturers, to put it mildly. Although arsenic and arsenic poisoning were so common during Victorian times, arsenic has a long and somewhat complicated history, dating back to Roman times and possibly even earlier. In an article by Robin Lindley called Arsenic, Victorian Secret, 
James C. Wharton, Professor Emeritus of Bioethics and Humanities at University of Washington, and author of The Arsenic Century, How Victorian Britain Was Poisoned at Home, Work, and Play, explains that several versions of arsenic can be seen throughout history, and that in the eyes of chemists, a number of versions are not actually considered toxic. The toxic version that was responsible for so much pain and suffering in the 19th century, arsenic trioxide, aka white arsenic, first appeared during the Middle Ages and was too expensive to be used by pretty much anyone except for the wealthiest and most powerful people, such as the Borgias, whom you may have heard of. However, as we've seen in previous episodes of this podcast, the Industrial Revolution ushered in a plethora of changes throughout Europe, and beginning in the 18th century, arsenic started to be produced in mass quantities through metal refining processes such as smelting. As a result, by the first half of the 19th century, arsenic was affordable to almost everyone. And, as Wharton notes, it could be found almost everywhere. Some measures were put into place regarding how arsenic was sold, such as the Sale of Arsenic Act, which was passed in Britain in 1851 and required that records be kept of who purchased arsenic and why. This was done mainly to create a register to keep track of poisonings, which, as we just mentioned, were happening not only because some people were using it for nefarious purposes, but also because it was pretty easy to ingest by accident. Because, as Wharton points out, people were a little careless about leaving it out. Also, even though I just said it's referred to as white arsenic, it doesn't have a color or taste. So the act provided for coloring agents to be added so that it couldn't be sold as a common household ingredient, such as sugar, flour, or cream of tartar. But for the most part, its sale was unregulated. And as Wharton tells Lindley, it still could be found at stores without coloring agents having been added. So I get the impression that these measures maybe weren't as strictly enforced as they could have been. As Helen Barrell explains in Poison Panic, one reason for such lax regulation was that arsenic was seen as having a number of legitimate uses. In addition to being a cheap and effective form of rat poison in the early 1800s, it was used as a fungicide and insecticide by farmers, as well as a way to treat sheep's wool and was also used by ammunitions manufacturers because it produced a more rounded shot by increasing the molten lead surface tension. In addition, Barrel notes that it was used in medicine throughout history and is still used today because it helps to stimulate the blood in small doses. This may explain why during the Victorian era, you could not only pick up a bottle of arsenic at your friendly neighborhood pharmacy, but also find on the shelves, or if you couldn't get out to the store for some reason, order through the mail, products to treat your complexion that not only contained arsenic, but rather proudly boasted its presence on the label. 
such as Dr. McKenzie's so-called improved harmless arsenic wafers, which leads you to wonder what exactly they improved upon. Or Dr. Campbell's safe arsenic complexion wafers and Fould's medicated arsenic complexion soap, described as, quote, the only real true beautifiers in the world, warranted to give satisfaction in every case or money refunded, end quote. As you probably know if you listen to my episode on the Victorian era pharmacy a few weeks back, I enjoy a few things more in this life than looking at Victorian era medicine ads. And the same goes for ads for beauty products of the time. I'm not going to make the case that arsenic is an effective way to treat your complexion. Actually, all kidding aside, the thought horrifies me. But despite the fact that it was used for a number of purposes that were seen as beneficial by individuals in the Victorian era, still might be wondering how something that was originally used as a form of rat poison ended up in food coloring, wallpaper, paint, and clothing, to name just a few of the long list of household items arsenic could be found in. But as Wharton tells Lindley, the green pigments produced by arsenic were far more attractive to most Victorians than those of other colors. Invented in 1775 by the Swedish-German chemist Carl Wilhelm Scheele, Scheele's green was, according to Andrea Hickey in Victorians Were Obsessed with a Shade of Green That Killed Them, quote, a bright and attractive hue unlike anything of its kind, end quote. A new version, known as Paris or Emerald Green, the latter of which is the term that I personally am most familiar with, was introduced in 1814 and contained arsenic. Hickey notes that many women, including Queen Victoria, loved to wear dresses in this color because of how it glimmered. The same could be said for wallpaper. I'll admit, as someone with a history of painting and drawing who can look at the paint colors on an art supply catalog for hours, some of the green wallpaper produced during the Victorian era, particularly in the designs created by the British artist William Morris, are incredibly beautiful to look at. But looking at pictures of it is worlds apart from maybe being in a room that had it plastered all over the walls. As D.D. D. Wood points out in The Poison of Arsenic in Victorian Era, Wallpaper was deadlier than most items that contained arsenic because, quote, it was ever present in a room. Particles would flake off of the wallpaper as fibers and get into lung linings. And the wallpaper itself produced a gas called trimethylarsine that leached into every pore of the body. It didn't help that during Victorian times, one would keep the window closed most days as the heavy air of the Industrial Revolution would leach into your home and find other ways to kill you." End quote. Wood also notes that in the 1850s, it was estimated that more than 100 million square feet of this wallpaper could be found in the UK. So 
when you add to that the number of factory workers who got sick spending long hours adding this pigment to a myriad of consumer products, it's easy to imagine a staggering number of people of all ages getting sick and dying, basically in the name of fashion and style. Even when the adverse effects of arsenic's presence in household items started to become more apparent, efforts to curtail its use were fairly slow in coming. Barrel explains that many individuals living during the Victorian era were strong believers in personal liberty, a catchphrase that we still hear today. Also, as Wharton tells Lindley, legislators were hesitant to impose regulations on manufacturers due to a quote-unquote laissez-faire, which, as I learned about it in school, roughly means hands-off approach to the market. However, by the late 1860s, doctors were finally beginning to spread the word about the connection between arsenic and household products that contained it which led consumers to start demanding arsenic-free versions of their favorite products. And eventually, manufacturers started to comply. Not necessarily because they believed arsenic was as harmful as doctors were saying it was, but because, I guess, they realized that not doing so might be bad for business. For example, in Death on the Doorstep, Arsenic in Victorian Wallpaper, Catherine Felkamp notes that William Morris thought doctors' warnings about the dangers of arsenic were a hoax, another term we tend to hear a lot nowadays. But by the 1870s, he gave in and started designing arsenic-free wallpaper. And that in 1879, the company that produced Morris's new wallpaper, Jeffrey and Company, introduced a line of quote-unquote washable, hygienic wallpapers that were devoid of arsenic. On that note, I'm going to start wrapping up my discussion of arsenic here. I find the topic interesting for a number of reasons, and I was a little surprised to learn that arsenic was added to so many products we'd probably never think included it at first. But really, I think this is a good example of that phrase, the more things change, the more they stay the same. I mean, toxic ingredients are still used in watercolor and oil paint. The art catalog that I was looking at when I was putting this episode together puts a warning about cancer and reproductive harm next to its cadmium colors, cobalts, manganese, aurelian, which is a type of yellow, etc. There's a sizable assortment of colors that don't have these warnings beside them, one of which, ironically enough, is emerald green, which a number of paint manufacturers offer, and I don't see the warning by any of them. So it's not like you have to buy, say, cadmium red if you want to add it to your watercolor painting, but a lot of times you do get better effects with the more toxic colors than with the non-toxic ones and they usually cost more than the non-toxic colors. So it's a bit different in the sense that maybe an oil painter, in addition to using turpentine and other lethal substances, 
knows that that tube of cobalt blue that they just opened contains toxins and probably won't ingest it as a result, but still. And I was going to add that there's a big difference between a tube of cobalt blue oil paint and cobalt blue wallpaper, which I didn't think existed in this day and age. And then during a Google search, I found a contemporary brand of wallpaper that has cadmium red and cobalt blue in it. I don't know if the elements are actually in these colors or maybe they could be non-toxic versions. In other words, they look just like cadmium red but don't contain cadmium. There's a an acrylic company called Liquitex sells both cadmium colors and cadmium free versions of those colors. So Maybe this wallpaper company does the same thing. I don't know. This is something I need to look into and see how I nerd out over art supplies. But it's really not that hard to picture people becoming as attached to a color as Victorians did to Shields Green, or if you prefer, Emerald Green. As far as businesses and manufacturers leaving products that they knew were harmful in the market, that's also something that we still see in modern times, unfortunately. In the US, cigarette companies pretty much knew smoking was harmful back in the 1950s, when, as you may remember if you've ever watched Mad Men, people could smoke pretty much anywhere. And they continued marketing their products as if nothing was wrong publicly stating that the evidence was inconclusive and creating ads that portrayed smokers as cool and sexy and marketing brands to women, conveying the message that they could keep weight off by smoking. Or maybe they could see their cigarette breaks as calming moments away from the kids or something along those lines. The cigarette lobby in the US was incredibly effective at publicly downplaying or outright denying the health risks of their products until the 1990s. And even though cigarette ads were banned on TV and radio several decades before that in the early 1970s, you still saw plenty of cool characters in movies and TV shows smoking after that. So when the public decided to take a stand against arsenic in the later years of the Victorian era, it seems less like this eye-opening moment about the need for safer products and more like an opportunity for other contaminants to take arsenic's place. But what do you think? Email me at thevictorianvarietyshow at gmail.com or leave me a voice message at the link in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter at at VictorianVariety1. And if you'd like to support the show financially, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash MarissaDF13. Also, I'd really appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening, as that'll help the show reach more listeners. Thanks so much for listening and for all of your support and feedback. I really enjoy doing research and putting these episodes together and kind of tying everything together. I think that's important to do when you study just about any period in history. I think it puts a lot of things into perspective. I'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode, but in the meantime, 
I'm going to leave you with an excerpt from a story that you may be familiar with and may even have thought about while you listen to this episode because I thought about it while I was putting this episode together. The Yellow Wallpaper, which was first published in 1892 by the American writer Charlotte Perkins Gilman, is the name of the story. And there are a number of possible interpretations of it that I won't get into now. Although I'm thinking that they might be worth discussing in a future episode. But I do think it's pretty easy to see some parallels between the green wallpaper that made the couple I talked about at the beginning of this episode. And their parrot. So sick and the yellow wallpaper that the protagonist describes in such a beautiful yet horrific way in Gilman's story. And this passage I'm about to read, I think, alludes more to the design of the paper than the color, but I like it and I chose it because the paper really takes on a life of its own here. This paper looks to me as if it knew what a vicious influence it had. There is a recurrent spot where the pattern lulls like a broken neck and two bulbous eyes stare at you upside down. I get positively angry with the impertinence of it and the everlastingness. Up and down and sideways they crawl and those absurd unblinking eyes are everywhere. There is one place where two breaths didn't match, and the eyes go all up and down the line, one a little higher than the other. I never saw so much expression in an inanimate thing before, and we all know how much expression they have. I used to lie awake as a child and get more entertainment and terror out of blank walls and plain furniture than most children could find in a toy store. 